0: How do neural networks affect your life? Well, of course you have the neural network that you carry around in your skull, but the one that you carry around in your pocket has become increasingly more powerful uh, in just the last two or three years. And over the course of the last five years, uh, neural nets in day-to-day computing software and cell phones have become uh, more ubiquitous and vastly more powerful. In today's episode on the Tech Emergence podcast, we bring on uh, Dr. Yashua Bengio at the University of Montreal uh, to speak specifically on the topic of neural nets and the progress we've seen in the last 10 years. Where are the domains that neural nets and deep learning as an artificial intelligence approach uh... where they really made a difference in uh... research and in commercial applications uh... yashua's was a uh... researcher at bell labs with Jan lecun who's now heading up a.i at uh... facebook um, and was working on neural nets before the rest of the world thought that they were tremendously interesting or during another one of their sort of winter phases we might say along with a uh, jeff hinton uh... who's now over at google uh... yashua Bengio still over at the university of Montreal. Again, in this episode, he breaks down uh, not only the last 10 years of neural networks, but where he believes there's ample opportunity for improvements in neural nets, particularly in how they might be able to uh, enhance uh, language understanding as well as apply themselves specifically to the medical domain. So very interesting perspectives from a tremendously educated fellow in this particular domain of deep learning. So without further ado, we'll hop right in. So,
1: Yashua, I'm interested first, and we've gotten a lot of great perspective about this over the last maybe 20 or so interviews. Um, On your perspective, you've been in AI since the 80s, since before neural nets were cool, I guess we could say, and now you've been working in that space across so many different domains. In the last just 10 years, the last decade alone, where has the most traction been seen and and, and what have been the biggest shifts in AI to sort of move it forward in your perspective?
2: Right. there, There has been a major shift. Um. Neural nets were kind of gone out of fashion, and around 2005-2006, a very small group of researchers, including myself and Jeff Hinton and Jan Locarn, decided that uh, we needed to do something to revive this, because we believed this was the right thing to do. And uh, that's uh, we got together in this organization uh, called CIFAR. And uh, we, we quickly discovered some ways to transition from the old neural nets to what is now called deep learning. And what's different with deep learning is that the, the neural nets have more layers, more levels of representation. Yeah. And this allows them to essentially capture more abstract notions, more abstract concepts that allows the computer to take much better decisions. So that's the biggest thing. And then uh, that happened about 10 years ago uh, but it took uh, five more years to get these, uh, these deeper neural nets to actually show impressive results, first in speech recognition and then in computer vision, and more recently in natural language processing. And in all these three areas, uh, the fields of, uh, both in, in academia and, and uh, in industry have been completely changed by the venue of, of, uh, of these algorithms.
1: And in terms of how those tangible changes have manifested, I mean, some of us, uh, you know, folks who, who are just perusing Google, you know, may in fact be be familiar with uh, some interplay between neural nets and, and what's going on in speak recognition, the series of the world uh, and, and and whatever else, or um, in, in Google's, Google's uh, image recognition machines kind of dreaming, quote unquote, and making these funny, cool neural net pictures, finding representations of of animals where they they aren't um and, and things along those lines so some of us are peripherally aware of of kind of some of what what hits yahoo news in terms of really the underlying implications of this and where ai has been able to make its its footprint in industry and in our lives because of those shifts how, how has that uh also been kind of, of of greater influence
2: well it started um around 2010 as i said the the uh industrial applications uh, that we started with the speech recognition. By 2012, uh, you, if you had an Android phone, you already had a neural net in your phone and also on the server, a bigger one, that would help to, uh, to bring better speech recognition. Then um, the revolution happened in the computer vision uh, uh, arena where the problem of object recognition was almost solved by using these uh, so-called convolutional neural networks, which are a type of neural networks that are specialized for dealing with images. And so much that uh, uh, this year, we now have neural nets that recognize objects from a thousand categories about as well as humans. And you can say pretty much the same thing with the recognition of faces. So like who is in the image, by looking at the image of the face. So in terms of applications, you can imagine that uh, these these advances in computer vision, in particular, are changing industry in many ways. Everywhere you have images. In particular, more recently, there's lots of companies we're starting to use this for biomedical images. So the whole world of, of health eventually is also going, also going to be impacted by this, not just for images, but all kinds of inputs that can be used and combined by these models.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I guess that's one of the, the old classic examples of, of, uh, was it Mycin at, at, uh, Stanford, you know, an algorithm to, to diagnose, um, you know, conditions of the blood just based on data or questions or, or whatever the case may be. But but this is obviously with deep learning is a little bit of a different game. I've I've heard that uh, in some respect there may be and, and probably are to some degree, although I'm sure not mainstream applications of you know diagnostics based on images or based on um, some kind of biofeedback or things like that based on a, a kind of a learning system. I don't know how much traction you see with that today, but I've I've certainly heard the tremors a little bit.
2: Yeah, I mean, the important thing with deep learning and machine learning in general, but especially for deep learning, is that it, it needs a lot of data to train on. Yeah. So computer learns to do a task like recognizing an object in an image or identifying that uh, there's a cancer uh, cell somewhere uh, or recognizing which uh, word you're saying when you're speaking by looking at millions of examples. And one reason why neural nets sort of didn't catch earlier is that we didn't have that much data in the 90s. Now, not only you needed uh, more data, but you also needed uh, more powerful computers because these these models are big. They have lots of free parameters, and that means a lot of computation. They're still tiny compared to real brains in terms of number of neurons yep. or connections. but. But we need that uh, that computational power, and uh, something happened around two thousand nine, which is the the use of graphics processing units GPUs um, by researchers in deep learning that suddenly changed the game. It allowed us to train models that were maybe ten or twenty times bigger, and we just passed the threshold thanks to this extra computational power.
1: Huh, and and now this is permitting a lot of these. In in some ways, I guess that's. That's a little bit of just the general brute force development in computer science. That's always going to nudge things forward to some degree, even if it's not tremendously innovative. It can just al- allow us to to do what we couldn't before because we have more force behind it. Sounds like uh, right. recognizing faces and cats and you know street signs. Um, we you know pumping that much data through a machine. Some of those those uh, just brute force upgrades kind of help help move that along.
2: Right. As a comparison, when I was doing my PhD or later in the 90s and even early 2000s, the typical data sets that researchers would use for neural nets training were things like recognizing handwritten digits or handwritten characters. These are all 32 by 32 images, whereas today we we deal with images that are basically the resolution we're used to see on screens, like 256 by 256. Yep. And, and that makes a huge difference. Of course, it's a lot more computation, but now we can do it. And and we'd say, for example, that video is something still, which we still don't have enough computing power, but within a few years, it, we'll see more applications in the video area because of the uh, extra computing power.
1: And, and let's let's move into that. So I'm, I'm interested in your perspective here. You know, we, we've uh, had a number of folks um, in the, the machine vision space on board, and I, I think in terms of, of uh, domains where these neural nets have, have made an influence, in terms of very ways that AI has crept its way into the world, there's, there's no better example than you know, Facebook tagging you without you tagging you, and uh, you know, Google you know, or some neural net picking out a cat. Um, but, uh, but of course, video and so many other areas um, are, are sort of ripe for the pluck when it comes to applying neural nets and, and making sense of streams of data. Uh where in the next decade ahead do you think this will really hit the ground running? Um in, in other words, how how will your average kind of Joe on the street um know or be influenced by artificial intelligence in a way that's you know more pervasive than than the neural net in and his Android and, you know, Facebook tagging his friends without him having to do it?
2: Well, so I believe that one of the big revolutions that is coming is in the area of natural language understanding so computers are now pretty good at understanding images but in terms of understanding the meaning of uh, a sentence a paragraph a document we still have a lot of progress to make and there's now a lot of people around the world working on um, designing new algorithms based on deep learning for exactly that There are things that people in AI thought would not ever be possible to do with neural nets. They thought that neural nets would only be good for pattern recognition. But it turns out that using uh, special forms of neural nets called recurrent nets, you can actually train these models to to reason sequentially, to combine pieces of evidence, and eventually try. We want to do to use this for example dialogue. So in terms of uh, uh, how it will change people's lives, it will mean that you can talk to your computer, and not only it will translate your sounds into words, but it will actually understand what you talk about most of the time, if it's simple enough things initially. And so lots of people currently don't even use a computer. Will be able to do it because they can just talk to the computer.
1: Yeah, yeah, and this is, of course, uh, I mean, this is human human machine interaction or human ma- right. machine interface. And and right now, you know, it's it's so funny, isn't it, Yashua, to, to, to think about the keyboard and just the the qwerty keyboard setup as right. as it is as it is today, and to just assume that that is inherent to computers is just such a silly anachronistic thing. Um, and for us as human beings. It would seem as though there's there's uh, inexorable advantages to to you know uh, just understanding voice, understanding multiple languages, and being able to take commands that way. Of course, it makes sense to still be able to represent symbols to a machine in a different way. But but yeah, like you said, man, even if you can't type and you're not familiar with computers, if you can leverage that much technology without that knowledge, it's definitely a powerful transition.
2: Another big change, which uh, maybe is is less. Uh obvious for people to see how it's going to change their life, is that up to now, the algorithms that we've been uh, most successful with, with are called supervised learning. And what it means is that we tell the computer what the answer should be for many, many cases. So if, if, if the computer is supposed to recognize objects and images, then we tell it, okay, so here's an, an image and, and that image contains a cat or that other image contains a dog, that image contains a keyboard, and we're going to have millions of these examples. This is called supervised because we tell the computer what is the uh, semantic content of the the images or the the documents that we want the computer to, to do something with. But actually there's a lot more data out there which doesn't have these labels, these human annotations that tell the computer what is in in that uh, input and, and what the computer should do. Uh, the way we learn is just by observing the world. We don't have uh, somebody sitting near us and, and telling us every second, oh, you should have done that, you should have done that. This was the right thing to do. Uh, this is not even how children work. Of course of – course, uh, um, they, we do give feedback to children, but it's a small, very small fraction of all of the experience they're getting. Yeah. So that way of getting information from uh, un, what we call unlabeled data is called unsupervised learning, and uh, it's a very hot topic right now. But clearly, not uh, something we have cracked. Something that is still in the in, in the in the column of challenges.
1: For sure, and and you know it 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 does seem. I mean, it seems uh, it seems actually rather exciting to have that nut be cracked. Just because right now, as you had mentioned, you know, if uh, you want to get a machine to sort five million pictures of cars, um, you've got to have people sort fifty thousand of them by you know front, back, tire, you know, uh, headlight, dashboard. You got to you got to sort all the pieces and before before and then and then you have to run little test samples before you can trust the machine to to parse them in the right way, if, and that's, of course, one random arbitrary example, but if, if machines hypothetically could learn in that, in that same sense without labeling, what might be some of the applications? I mean, what are people excited about there? I mean, I can imagine, but you're, you're a man in the field. So
2: basically, by the, the, the secret of machine learning is the amount of information that the computer can get about the world so it can understand better. And that information essentially comes from data, from examples. So if we're able to crack that, knot, the computer can uh, uh, take advantage of much, much larger quantities of data and so build models of more aspects of the world and more detailed uh, and and more abstract aspects of the world. So so the potential is very big for essentially making a step up towards AI. We will need to make that step uh, because it's not going to be feasible to label every single pixel of millions of images by hand
1: yeah no i mean it's unreasonable and even right now i mean some of these projects obviously there there's there's whole swaths of projects that no university would even undertake because you'd need x number of students for x number of hundreds of hours that would just be silly and you, you wouldn't even be able to pull it off it would sure would be fascinating but but we wouldn't have a shot um where else in the coming decade do you think will we'll notice AI sort of influencing our lives or, or the businesses around us? What are some of the areas where, you you know, it sounds like your, your idea is that uh, the the various speech recognition systems will be more adept, so maybe Siri will be capable of doing more than it is now, um, yes. understanding words in context, you know, whatever the case may be. Um, what are some other shifts and noticeable shifts that maybe in, in 2025, um, we might notice about the world in terms of where and how AI has influenced us.
2: Well, first of all, it's very hard to put dates on things. Yeah, especially. no, for
1: sure, for sure. Yeah. I
2: don't have a crystal ball. <laughs> nor does anyone. No,
1: no, no. And I, we we don't ask anybody to. I think. Yeah.
2: I'll, I'll, um, yeah. But I would say um, it's it's fairly likely that we'll see people's lives uh, greatly changed by progress in applying deep learning and machine learning in general to uh, the medical domain. Uh, both uh, on the research side, uh, sort of understanding how uh, molecules kind of interact with, with each other in your body and uh, designing better drugs, but more uh, precisely building what's called personalized medicine, yeah. where we can, we can uh, uh, find the treatment that's most appropriate for you with all your history and, and all the test results we have for you, uh, which isn't exactly what's going on right now, where Well, basically you have this disease, so we give you this drug. Uh, But we don't know, maybe you need a different dosage, or maybe it should be combined with another drug, or maybe, you know, there are lots of things specific to you that are not being taken into account right now. So that's another area where it's very likely we'll see a big impact in people's lives.
1: Got it. And and do you, are are you working, just out of my own curiosity, are you working in any uh, of those kinds of domains today? In other words, does any of your own research or those of your close colleagues in in deep learning um, honed in on medical already?
2: Yes, yes, I am. I am working on this. I mean, it's uh, pretty much starting projects, but certainly something uh, I would like more researchers in my area to work on uh, because I feel like this is a kind of application where we can directly help people, uh, not just by building better gadgets, but uh, directly uh, influencing the health of of, of humans.
1: Indeed, indeed. And and I think... uh the medical, medical field certainly is rife, certainly has its own hurdles in terms of implication and who do you sell it to and how do you get these technologies to become mainstream, but the capacity for benefit there seems relatively obvious and I'm, I'm i'll be rooting for it myself for sure well,
2: there, there is the issue of data in the medical domain
1: oh yeah that that's... It will be
2: solved uh, because yeah. the, the benefits are too great but right now it's not always easy for all kinds of reasons oh, legal man, had... and privacy issues and yep. so
1: on yeah hipaa laws and 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 also the the whole fact of if you want to move these technologies into a hospital the the this you know selling a new upgraded phone to an individual is a, an easier bet than right you want you want to sell it to the doctors but they don't control the budgets and these things happen seasonally and the nurses have to be on board and oy oy, oy um that we've uh, we've had folks on board with startups in that space and I can I can only imagine how uh, far that goes but uh, as technology has still per, um you know penetrated that domain in the past I'm sure it will in the future and hopefully AI will be part of that as my last topic Yashua. And I've brought this up on a number of occasions, um, and, and we've even emailed past uh, guests about this kind of thing for other articles that we've written, just to, to reference some experts. There's been hubbub around sort of AI and risk, um, with with you know particularly notable are, are the the press releases about you know the, the statements of Elon Musk and Bill Gates and, and Stephen Hawking and folks along those lines, kind of having serious existential concerns around. AI and machines that would be more intelligent than us and 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 uh, believing it to be prudent to put forth effort to maybe plan for a safer AI or really uh, draw more attention to questions around how fast we're developing and in what particular spaces. Um, As someone who's been in the field for so darn long, uh, clearly Musk is, is not a dumb fella. Clearly, he also has a good pulse on sort of market forces. He's, he's, he's relatively adept uh, business-wise. Um, some folks still don't necessarily believe that there's all that much credence to any kind of concern about real human risk from AI. And then I've talked to other folks that, that really believe that there is. Um, where do you stand on that? You know, if, if AI does pose any kind of risk, what do you think it is? And, and is it worth really talking about now?
2: Well, I think the way you've asked the question almost answers it. We huh. don't know. Yeah. Right? There are people who are... Um, concerned and there are people with a lot of technical knowledge who are not so um, I believe right now we are a bit too far from this uh, potential danger to do much about it however I do think we we have to be uh, acting responsibly in general not just about the existential risk but there are more um, important maybe at least in the short term risks that are I would say uh, social risks So I signed a letter saying that governments should get together to ban the use of AI for building autonomous weapons. Yeah. 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 Uh, So that's an example where uh, it's not in 20 years, it's now, or, you know, within a few years, we have the technology to build weapons that can autonomously decide to kill somebody. And of course. Uh, we have to think about this uh, from an ethical perspective and, and my choice here is to say well let's avoid going there and let's avoid an arms race with that kind of technology yeah um, there are other social issues that also involve governments and, and citizens thinking about uh, such as uh, these technologies could displace a lot of people's from their work how are we going to deal with that uh, collectively are we going to just you know let them die or are we going to build the social nets that's necessary to have a smooth transformation of our society for the better?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: Um, basically, any kind of uh, powerful technology like this uh, has the potential of uh, bringing a lot of power in the hands of very few people. And that's always something to be worried about for uh, um you know, society in general, and we need collectively to to manage that.
1: And and uh, so you brought up, and, and these are good points, and all worth considering. I think autonomous robots, uh, you know, killing robots, uh, you know, for for combat. I think that there's a, a lot of credence to the to the banning thereof. I mean, as as has been done with chemical weapons, and as limitations and sanctions have been put on nuclear technologies. I, I think that that there seems to be a rationale there. I don't understand all the economic and political forces at play in that mix, but jeepers, that seems like one that, you know, an arms race is about as bad as it gets. Um, In terms of displacing people in work, maybe sort of restructuring society, that's also important. This whole idea of, of power in the hands of few, is this potentially companies that develop artificial intelligences that can allow them to monopolize and regulating those? Is this countries that can leverage AI to take advantage of other countries. What do you see as, you know, in terms of the power in the hands of the few, what might be some of those scenarios that are worth being wary of? I'm, I'm trying to put that in the context of AI.
2: All of the things you've said we should be wary of. Mm. Uh, think about as uh, to give examples uh, of the technology I mentioned for face recognition in the hands of uh, authoritarian uh, governments. That essentially, you can play big brother on their population. So I'm not saying this is going to be easy to prevent, but uh, we have to think about these things. And, and there are things we can do as citizens to influence our governments to try to reduce those risks.
1: And so in, in terms of short-term risks, um, uh, p- potentially some of them that, that, that you've brought to the fore today, you know, it's, and I don't think even Musk or any of these folks are necessarily planning on um, you know, Terminator robots dropping from, from the sky you know, next week or anything like that. Um, but, uh, you know, shorter term risks, autonomous killing robots, there's one, uh, dispersing of people, you know, into technological unemployment of some kind. That's, that's, uh, that's another one. Um, those are sort of among the, the, the maybe shorter term risks. Now, in terms of preparing for those, I suppose at this point, it's really just facilitating a conversation around what would we do? How could we prepare? Yes. You know, how, how might, how might we, deal with this? And can we tinker with some of these ways of solving this so that if X percent of folks in these industries are unemployed, we could do Y? So it's kind of proliferating the conversation more or less.
2: Yeah, we need ordinary citizens to understand the issues so that the message eventually gets to politicians. That's, yeah. that's the way democracy works. We need to have a, a collective discussion uh, so that people can take the, the wise choices.
1: Yeah, and, and those those conversations are not going to make it up to the the political consideration uh, if if the populace isn't concerned. Of course, you know, right. if you want to get elected, and we're doing these short little cycles, you may not really you know technological unemployment is unlikely to happen during your four year stint, and so uh, you might as well tackle uh, what people are making noise about. Um, and uh, it sounds it sounds like unless that that noise, for lack of of better term. Um, is, is a serious consideration of these issues too. They may never make it onto that docket. And hopefully, through the proliferation of this very kind of conversation, if that's we're doing right. if we're doing it right, um, we'll uh, we'll bring some of those issues to the fore. So that's why I'm grateful to hear your perspective today, Yashua, uh, Thank you for being able to join us and share your opinions here on Tech emergence Thank you, Dan. And that wraps up this episode on the Tech Emergence podcast. Thanks for being here. And remember to subscribe on iTunes to stay on top of the latest news breaks, researcher perspectives, and entrepreneur interviews in artificial intelligence, neurotechnology, and more. And we want to hear from you as well. So be sure to leave a review on iTunes, which are always appreciated, or contact us directly. At infotechemergence.com. At and remember, all of our entrepreneur interviews and interviews with top researchers from around the world, from Stanford to Oxford and beyond, can be found right on our main site at Techemergence.com. Remember to sign up for the newsletter while you're there. So, with the best of intentions for a brilliant future, this is Dan Figella signing off, and I'll see you next week.